Good morning. And, uh, my name is Tanya Schneider, and I'd like to welcome you to the second talk in the seminar series, The Politics and Practices of Food Governance. The seminar series is organized by the Oxford Food Governance Group, and we're a new and interdisciplinary group of researchers from the Institute of Science Innovation Society, Unit for Biocultural Variation and Obesity, and the Science Business School. And we all share our research interest in food governance practices. Current members of the group are Dr. Catherine Dolan, sitting here, Dr. Karen Ellie, there, and Dr. Javier Lazon, <laughs> and Professor Stanley Ulyacek, who is sitting there, and myself. And our group and the seminar series <coughs> aims to stimulate discussion and generate new and interdisciplinary insights into the study of food governance by exploring how the food we eat and how much we eat of it is shaped by economic, political, sociocultural, and also historical factors. And more importantly, I think we're also interested in how, looking into how individuals as citizen consumers participate in food governance processes on a regular basis. We are very grateful to uh, Green Templeton College, who has been supporting our seminar series uh, through a small grant <coughs> from the Academic Initiatives Grant uh, Fund. Uh, last week we started our series with um, Professor Charles Godfrey from the University of Oxford here, head of the Oxford Martin School Future of Food program, and he has been speaking on the challenge of feeding 9 to 10 billion people by mid-century. Is it a question of supply, demand, and governance? And I can say that Charles gave a, a really brilliant talk and mapped the main issues related to um, the issues around food production and consumption. And as you can see from this program, we have, another, we have other eminent speakers today and coming in the next couple of weeks. Uh, they are coming from uh, the Netherlands, London, California, Brussels, uh, and the UK. And um, they talk about topics such as obesity, food labeling, <coughs> and uh, regulatory efforts on the EU level. And it is now my great pleasure to introduce today's speakers. Professor Alan Peterson, who is joining us from Monash, Melbourne, in Australia. Uh, Alan Peterson is a professor of sociology, and his research interests include the sociology of health and medicine, science and technology studies, gender studies, and his books uh, include titles such as The New Public Health, um, Foucault, Health and Medicine, and more recently, The Politics of Bioethics. And he's currently writing another book, called Hope in Health, The Sociopolitics of Expectations, we published with Paul Gray. So Ellen will talk today about an ongoing research project entitled Improving Australia's Response to Childhood Obesity, Prevention Education and Its Impact on Mothers and Families, that is supported by an Australian Research Council grant. And uh, just a very final note on the format of the session, Ellen will speak for approximately 45 minutes. And then we have about half an hour left for questions and discussion. And uh, we will be recording his talk, but not the discussion session. So I hand over to Ellen. Thank you very and much. I very much look forward to your talk. Thank you very much. While uh, Tanya is preparing, I must say that I really like a discursive type format where it's a conversation. And, um, uh, that's the style. I've got quite a lot of time today. It's very generous, actually. I'm just looking at 
20 minutes, 15 minutes, as was the case at the uh, European Association for Studies of Science and Technology last week. Um, so I'd like to keep it chatting. And uh, the, the talk today really is based on um, an ARC project, Australian Research Council Discovery Project, as mentioned, a two-year project, um, which uh, finishes this year. And we're all in the process now of making sense of the data and writing articles. Uh, but I've also introduced some other data because um, uh, I know that there's a, a version interesting food at the moment, and um, uh, I'm interested in this, this group. I've given details to my colleagues because there's a group called, called the Food Society and Culture Network, which just started in Deborah Lupton, Theresa Davis are convening that in Australia. And I found out at my own university at Monash there's considerable interest also in food. And uh, when I start uh, talking to people around the place, I realise that there's, there's a proliferation of work on food. Uh, wasn't uh, evident uh, even, even a decade or so ago. So I find this phenomenon of interest in food and eating and obesity uh, quite fascinating. But what I wanted to do also is, is to locate uh, this study in a broader uh, discourse around food and obesity because there's a much, much longer history. And um, I'm often critical of my own discipline, sociology, for not being um, historical enough. Um, when you think of the founding figures, we're, we're profoundly interested in history when you think of Weber and Marx and and Durkheim, but I think that uh, uh, contemporary sociologists often forget history, they're not historical enough, so I want to try and bring some of that in, and rather, uh, rather than sort of give a, a, a neat uh, narrative on a particular um, uh, study, the ARC study, I wanted to, to broaden it up for discussion and uh, have some uh, serve as a provocation. Um, so that's what I've got in mind. I've got, um, you don't mind I sit, sit down, yeah. but uh, I've got sort of a, a, a sociology of health background, I should say that to start with, just so people clear where I'm coming from. But over the last uh, decade or 15 years, I've moved more into the science and technology studies field. Um, but I've also done work on gender, and I wrote a book called Engendering Emotions, which was published in 2004, and I wrote an earlier book, Unmasking the Masculine. So I'm interested in the construction of sex gender, uh, so I've done work, as I say, on uh, the, the construction of gender differences in emotionality, and I want to bring some of that in, and also draw on some perspectives in governmentality. I was interested in looking at the blogs on governance, and uh, the group obviously recognised this is a very contested term. I realised just how contested it was when I entered the book with Herbert Gottlieb a few years ago on biobanks, or governance, in comparative perspective. And people read into governance all kinds of things. Some people think about governance in quite a narrow uh, way in terms of uh, you know, government regulations, that kind of thing. Some of them think of more of a Foucauldian sort of concept. So it'd be good for us to think about that as well, and also the links with uh, anxiety, because one thing I've been trying to get away from in my own work is essentialism, some of the concepts that we use around, um, um, concepts that we use uh, to, to express um, affective issues. One of them is anxiety, so I want to talk a little bit about social anxieties, and what anxieties are usually thought about in psychology or biomedical practice. Um, as Tandy had mentioned, I'm doing a book on hope. As most books are, it's way behind schedule. <laughs> um, but one of the things I've noticed looking at literature on hope so far is that it, it's been essentialised, it's been psychologised. Psychology's taken up the, the language of hope in the last decade and, and talked about it as, as, a, as a thing, as something you can instill or foster in people. I'm very interested in that discourse and why this is in the, the last couple of decades. We're talking about anxiety today, and as I said, the project arises out of this ARC project. Like many um, research council projects, it wasn't funded to the full amount. In fact, the budget was drastically reduced. We've got about a third of what we asked for. 
as a three-year project, ended up being a two-year project led by Suzanne Fraser, who's just been awarded a future fellowship. Some of you know, will know Janice Wright. Janice uh, co-authored a book with Michael Gard in 2005 on the obesity epidemic. I think it was perhaps the first, one of the first looking at, at the obesity epidemic, so her insights are invaluable. Jane Marie Mayer uh, is a colleague in gender studies, and Claire Tanner, who's the RA on this project, is also working on a project on stem cell tourism. I'm going to be talking about tomorrow um, to the SDS group. <clears throat> and so uh, most of the sort of uh, sociology um, background, or gender studies background. And it's got quite a uh, sort of a policy uh, orientation in the study. Uh, here are the, the, the aims, of, which is really to, to map the ways in which childhood obesity is constructing the public health, child care training, and health policy literatures. You might wonder why I'm focusing on, uh, why we're focusing on child care context. Well, one of it's pragmatic, it's easy to, it's a recruitment context for recruiting people. The other thing is too, uh, in Australia, between 1991 and 2000, there's been tripling of the number of childcare places. And I, I, I think this is part of the, the background of the study, is that the, the increasingly childcare and, um, and, and schools have become sites for, for the governments, with the new discourses around health and obesity, and I wanted to demonstrate uh, how this is manifest in some of the health promotion advice which is being offered. There hasn't been much uh, work done on childcare workers. We interviewed only a few in the study, mainly six, two from the three centres that we that we um, analysed. But it's interesting what they had to say nonetheless, and I think there's a lot more. There's scope to do a lot more study in this area. We also want to explore the ways in which the issue of childhood obesity is taken up in daycare centres, the kind of sort of practices that are undertaken, how the childcare centres talk about you know, the practices, etc. Analyse how parenting and motherhood. Uh, constituted the childhood obesity policy and practice of daycare centres and literatures explored. We've got a range of different literatures, uh, sort of health promotion advice, which is readily available uh, online or via pamphlets and other forums. It's available at childhood centres, for example. To investigate how mothers engage with childhood obesity policy and practice in daycare centres, so we actually talk to the mothers from the different centres, generating insights and concrete strategies for acting on these issues to inform policies. I said it's got a very policy focus. Um, in my own work, I suppose I'm always interested in, in some policy implication. I know policy is a contested field, what people constitute as policy. I was an SDS conference in Sydney only a couple of weeks ago on a panel from as called from activism to expertise, which was looking at the interface between SDS and policy. And there's a meeting with the history of philosophy of science group. There's a lot of thought being given to what policy uh, is uh, and how SDS may or may not contribute to that field. So I'm bringing some of my work into this as well. As I said, participants were recruited from uh, three sites, um, and we don't have to go into the details. Uh, two, two of them were in the east of Melbourne, and people know Melbourne. Wrapped around a, a, bay, a bay, and there's two sites on the eastern side, one on the western side. Western side tends to be uh, an area of lower socioeconomic uh, um, characteristics, I suppose you could say. And, and we've got. Um, can you be specific? Beg your pardon? Can you, be, can you name names? Which, where are they specific? Uh, no, I can't tell you where the sites are. Okay. But I, think, I think we need to keep that, that sort of, you know, part of the, uh, the ethical protocol that we don't actually identify with the site. So I'd like to say that one of them is near a university. Uh, and um, I'll, I'm going to talk about the demographics in just a little while. One of them's uh, further down the bay, and one's on the other side of the bay in the west. 
So we undertook uh, in, in depth qualitative interviews, uh, about 60, 90 minutes, and I'll code it in via in vivo. I'm not necessarily a great fan of in vivo, I think it's a useful tool, but I like to sort of go through manually, and I've been through all the all the transcripts myself. It's very time consuming, I think it's the only way to do it really. There are eight mothers, uh, two childcare workers were interviewed per site, so it's 30, relatively small sample. As I said, the interview is only part of this, it's also looking at the, the literature, the kind of information that's, that's available uh, to, to parents and also um, uh, the information that's available to childcare centres and looking at what they aim to achieve. Mothers all had young children, toddlers under five years, although there were other children that ranged up to 16 years of age. Um, and uh, the socioeconomic characteristics of sites uh, one and two, that's the one near the university, the one further down the bay on the east, uh, were comparable in terms of average income brackets. Housing prices, both sites were in relatively wealthy areas. One of the things I, I must mention, I worked in Kinnick for six and a half years till the end of 2007. When I went back to Melbourne in 2007, I was absolutely shocked by the housing prices. <laughs> I mean, it's written, I mean, you can get a modest house for about a million dollars uh, around the east side of the bay, close to the city, which is about £600,000. Um, and 1.5 million will buy you something reasonable. So it's, it's, it's you know, I've talked when I've talked, you know, the comparative terms will give you a perspective on some of these areas. You know, and Brighton and Campbellville and places like this are off the planet, multi million sometimes. Um, so they're, they're quite wealthy areas. Site 3 is located near the lower income mix and median house prices were approximately one-third of the other two sites. Um, again, a bit more information here. Site 1 was a childcare centre attached to the university, which meant the educational professional profile of mothers was quite specific, with six of the eight mothers undertaking having achieved a postgraduate degree. That might give you an idea of the differences. We're talking about small numbers here, so when we're doing comparisons, you know, there's only so much you can do with this, this kind of data. Site 2, mothers had a more varied educational and professional profile with bachelor degrees predominated. Five of the eight women did administrative work in both public and private sectors. These were all partnered. It's interesting here too about the partnership because if we look at Site 3, uh, women were more likely to be single. And five of the eight women identified mothering as their primary activity. One of these women was undertaking English classes. Another woman was studying for a childcare certificate. These mothers were considerably younger on average. Uh, Melbourne is very diverse, ethnically extremely diverse, linguistically very diverse, um, and so we had a diversity of cultural religious groups and samples as well. So these are the kind of questions that we explored. You know, we asked about the day-to-day -day practices of nutritional care, just quite uh, routine sorts of issues around diet, weight management, food preferences, portion control. Also asked about uh, about what they understood by healthy diet, healthy weight, appropriate physical activity, this kind of thing, and the sense of responsibility for children's diet and weight. And I've got some interesting stories to tell about this because when, when an interviewer goes in the field and asks, starts asking these sort of questions, I think that there's, there's certain assumptions that can be made straight away. It's very hard to be circumspect in asking these questions, but uh, often you know, it was assumed that uh, the researchers were... Um, yet another set of experts coming in to offer advice or to change their, to change their practices. So it does raise an, an issue around the ethics, I guess, the, the rigour of, sort of this kind of research. The challenges encountered in, in providing a healthy diet, ensuring healthy weight to children, uh, sources of information, this kind of thing, um, public health interventions, um, expert uh, advice received, experiences, etc. This paper, as I said, it's not just a straight analysis of the empirical data. I wanted to broaden it out a little bit so we can get some interesting conversation happening 
uh, towards the end. And if you, if you want to intervene in your please do, because uh, that's that's my preferred uh, mode of, um, of presentation. And I'm very interested in um, the significance of affect in the gender division of labour and the management of families' diets. Um, and uh, also, I've drawn a bit on Jackson Nevitt's work here on anxiety social practice. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this work. Um, as pertains to health, body weight and diet, um, which uh, can be seen as integral to contemporary neoliberal rule and the promotion of responsabilisation of citizen subjects. Now, some of you will be familiar with responsabilisation. It's an ugly term. I don't particularly like it. It's widely used in the coding literature. It's been around now for about 15 years. But really, it's a, it refers to a process of, I guess, crudely put, of, 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 of instilling a sense of responsibility into citizens, and it's increasingly something which uh, pertains to, to, to women as mothers. And I want, to make, I want to draw more attention to this in the production of anxiety in the last 20 or 30 years, in a period which some characterise as being dominated by a particular form of rule, namely neoliberalism. But of course, there's a longer history uh, of, of work on gendered food practice going back to Charles and Kerr's uh, important work in 1988 and Bourdieu's work, of course. Any of you familiar with this? Distinction of Social Critique of the Judgment of Taste. Um, I think much of this work is really focused on the gender division of physical labour involved in feeding families and the sociocultural significance of gendered food practices. There's been less investigation of the gender division of emotional labour, and of course, Hochschild uh, work here is seminal, and uh, some uh, writers have drawn on this work, although I think much more can be made of it. And I, I've got some problems with the, with the concept of emotional labour. It's useful, but like all tools, it's got some limitations as well. I think there's generally been a neglect of the politics of emotion in relation to gender. I mapped some of this out in the, the book that I mentioned earlier, that published in 2004. Um, of course, you know, there's been a whole psychology around gender differences in emotionality. Uh, trying to document whether or not there are differences um, uh, in, in ex expressions and experience of, of emotion. Um, some studies have found uh, back in the 80s, for example, there isn't anything fundamentally different except for aggression, for example. Some of my own work, I've, I've looked at the history of the psychology of um, sex differences in aggression. There's a whole body of theory around that. And uh, I'm, I'm quite. I think there's a lot of interesting work that, need, that can be done. What would be more historical, um, uh, more historically, at some of the psychology of aggression. I think some of the work's quite problematic, actually. So I'm interested in the political uh, aspects of engendering of emotion. William Reddy wrote an interesting book called *The Navigation of Human Feeling* a few years ago, where, as he pointed out, emotion is subject to profound social influence. You know, that's the highest political importance. I've drawn on some of this uh, work in the uh, General Emotions book. And one of the features of neoliberal rule, I'd argue, is the generation of strategic employment of social anxiety to engender self-monitoring and practice of self-care and risk management. There's a lot of work around risk, and I've, I've contributed to that uh, going back uh, 16 or 17 years now. I did a book with Deborah Lupton on the new public health which explored uh, issues around risk. Deborah, some of you would be very familiar with her work. Uh, uh, she's come back on the scene with a vengeance. She, she's dropped out for about three years. Um, I've had a number of conversations with her about that, and she's just produced a book on fat. Um, there's an interesting story to tell about the University of Sydney, where she's an adjunct, got an adjunct position. Sydney's just been awarded uh, a $30 million uh, grant to set up a fat studies centre. 
most of which is actually going to the building. Some of you may know about this. <laughs> and and university, uh, universities become quite instrumental in Australia, really, quite corporate in their approach. Monash, where I work, is extremely corporate. It's not the story to be told there. But, uh, but Sydney universities basically told people it might be in their interest to see how they can link up this fat studies agenda. And people are, 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 are you know, setting up all sorts of, maybe the third studies thing is part of it, I'm not sure. But there's, there's a lot of people trying to line up one way or another with the fat studies agenda and uh, producing all sorts of literature and producing all sorts of initiatives around that. But uh, anyway, getting back to the story about risk, <coughs> I think that risk is not often looked at in terms of the uh, issues around uh, emotionality and vulnerability. I did a book with Ian Wilkinson, edited a book a few years ago on health risk and vulnerability where we began to explore this. I think there's a lot more uh, thinking, hard thinking that needs to be done. But we can see in relation to diet and health where a lot of these prescriptions around you know, healthy eating practices might be a site where we begin to explore some of this responsabilisation and the way in which emotion has been brought into play. There's a bit of work here. Delaney's work, which you will find quite readily online, has recently published a PhD thesis that looks around this responsibilisation in relation to motherhood and antenatal care. Jane Marie Mayer, my colleague, as I mentioned. Sarah Nettleton has done some interesting work going back 20 years ago now in relation to dental health. I don't know Sarah Nettleton, she's a very well-known British um, sociologist, and uh, this person here too has done some work. So you may, there's a bit of work, uh, and we come back to this because there's some other work that's relevant as well. Um, Danzelow's work, some of you might be familiar with this, um, it was published now in 1977, <coughs> actually talked about the ways in which uh, practices of healthy diet constitute important loci for the government through the family, that's the term that's used, and for affecting the supervised freedom of children. Um, I've looked through this work, I mean it's quite old now of course, and it predates uh, what's generally considered to be the origins of kind of form of rule that I think is coming into play here, the neoliberalism. David Harvey's book um, uh, on, on uh, uh, neoliberalism, I think is probably the best part of history, and he sort of quotes the neoliberalism manifestations, um, both in terms of uh, political ideologies, economic <coughs> policies, etc., from the late 70s or 1980. It's not, not, it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just um, you know, political players like Margaret Thatcher that brought it into play. It's, it's, there's something else going on much more profoundly in terms of, in terms of a way of thinking and acting that, that started to manifest around this period. So we've also got some relevant writings that I want to refer to here in terms of um, gender. And Charles Kerr's work, uh, <coughs> Practices of Food Provision, Preparation has been implication in constructions of gender, family and childhood. And recently Stapleton and Keenan underline the links between routine domestic food practices and constructions of motherhood. As I said, food work is an aspect of the maternal repertoire which is performed relationally as such reflects the gender care interface. If we look in Australia, um, we've got a, a burgeoning interest in the childhood obesity. I think the same thing has been playing out in Britain as well. Um, in the early 2000s, there was a, a proliferating number of reports. Here are some of them. Um, and We've also a very strong focus uh, on children seen in, in these various initiatives, such as the Active School Program, Eat Well Australia Program, Kids Go for Your Life, Start Right, Eat Right, Filling the Gaps, Romp and Chomp, National Get Moving Campaign. Uh, interesting to explore when you've got you've had similar initiatives. Some of them are run for a very long period of time, um, but in a sense, as I said, some of these things are not so new. They're not so new, and. 
Um, we'll, 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 we'll have a look at some of these earlier issues in a little while. Here's some of the kind of the, you know, flagging of what's going on. And some of them, this one here is a South Australian initiative. <coughs> As it says here, the focus is really on the child care centres, which I think is significant. Uh, it's a South Australian initiative that promotes healthy eating and good nutrition for young children in South Australia's child care centres. Um, and there's a, <coughs> this one offers here an Eat Right cookbook. So these kind of initiatives are offering guidance. They're offering guidance in relation to healthy diet, healthy exercise, and they're um, often, I think, quite uh, patronising in their approach. Um, here's one here which sort of offers, talks about a kind of reward program uh, for those involved in this um, active, active living initiative, for example. Kids Go For Your Life program. We don't need to look at the details, just give you an idea of the sort of things that they're flagging um, on their websites. <coughs> And fun ways to get moving. There's been quite a lot of efforts on getting kids moving. And this is quite interesting, if not comical, for example, activities you can do, uh, physical games, e.g. stuck in the mud, getting around, walking, bike riding and skateboarding, so people don't know what it is to get around. Uh, <laughs> school family activities. Or try something new. Take your own or your neighbour's dog for a walk. Um, I don't know who these things are addressed to. I mean, you know, that people are not, not familiar with what, what, what they might do to get out and, and, and uh, you know, to be, to be physical. Um, and so, you know, there's very, various forms of advice here on, on what people can do and sources and games, quizzes, etc. that they can engage in. These two sites I want to show you because they're quite interesting and they're very, they're very brief, so if, hopefully we can log on. I think you should be able Yeah, but they're very brief and they're quite comical and they're also a product of their time, we must remember, and they're a bit Aussie. False cream, maybe? Uh, we've got a body control on this. Hmm? Never mind, but this is the norm uh, ads. Anyone familiar with this life be in it? This started in 1975, so it was quite a long period of time. Um, and I mean, I grew up with this stuff, you know, I was sort of. Uh, With the students, of course. Well, if you go into that, this one? Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, actually, Five cakes in the three of all the dogs on this side. Oh, I feel crook. Better have another cake. And you shouldn't eat too much either, or you'll get fat, like Norm. Who are you going fat? You. Oh, for a free booklet on swimming, write to the Commonwealth Department of Health. <laughs> They are very much a product of their time. And it's interesting, you know, they're very short, but there were a whole series of those norms that went over 15, 20 years, you know, which, which I, I think appealed to a certain kind of um, um, assumed, stereotyped, ochre, Aussie, bigger. 
Um, the accents and etc. sound quite odd as well. But, but I think we have to look back much earlier because uh, the discourse does, uh, in a way, in many respects, echo longer-standing concerns in the West about diet and weight and the relationship stretching back at least 2,000 years. Some of you might familiar this work, Foxcroft's work and Shell's work, for example, uh, outlining some of this history. We've seen a shift in the discourse from the 1960s onwards. My colleague, uh, Georgi Skrinis, just written a book called Nutritionism. Is anyone familiar with that book at all? Where he's talked about some of these shifts and this focus on... You may have... You may have uh, <laughs> Um, we came to a, a talk that I organised on the sociopolitics of food a few months ago at Monash. In, in, increasingly, uh, marketing of food is, is, you know, is made on the basis of the potential to reduce fat and calories. But of course, we can go back even much earlier, in the 15th century. Some of you might be familiar with Luigi Bonaro's work, for example, The Art of Living Long, which is really uh, focusing on sobriety and the benefits of sobriety. According to the stories, anyway, Canaro was ill until 35 and decided to take this um, uh, this temperate life. And, uh, and what's interesting about some of these early stories, too, is the ways in which they offer a kind of confession. I've been there, I've done that, I've lived a bad life. Now I know what good living is all about. Canaro lived to 104. So his life is witness to this, this healthy living um, of, that, of that period, which is not bad when you, when you consider you know, the, the period in which he was writing. And then we've got, uh, and interestingly, a discussion around corpulence, uh, you know, going back at, uh, at least to the end of the 19th century, for example. Um, this is a piece from the Harper's Weekly. And you know, I suppose you're familiar with the language of corpulency and fatness, etc. But we're here, we're having this discussion here, reference to obesity, and sort of all the, uh, the parasites that affect humanity. I do not know, nor can I imagine any more distressing than that of obesity, and having just emerged from a very long probation in this affliction. <laughs> I'm desirous of circulating my humble knowledge and experience for the benefit of my fellow man, with an earnest hope that it may lead to the same comfort and happiness I now feel under extraordinary change, which might most be termed miraculous, have not been accomplished by the most simple common sense means. So again, we've got this kind of a witnessing, if you like, you know, of, 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 of having overcome this um, affliction. But what's changed, I think, fundamentally over the last uh, two or three decades is the language of choice. The language of choice. This is something interesting. Really, I mean, Deborah and I talked about in the New Public Health uh, 16 years ago, and I think it's become even more entrenched. Um, we've got this emphasis on policies for promoting choice and enhancing choice, environments for encouraging uh, healthy choices, making um, healthy choices easy choices, which is part of the, the public health rhetoric. And I think this takes attribution of responsibility and implicit blame to a new level. So while many reports acknowledge uh, the environmental component of obesity, we hear about the obesogenic environment, which has become... Uh, quite significant. The dominant framing of the problem is still in terms of unhealthy choices of individuals who eat too much or the wrong types of food or exercise too little. So I think this is the blame. Of course we've got much discussion around the obesity gene in the same way as we've got discussion around the gene for smoking. Some people may not know but with the UK Biobank for example, this big project which has now recruited over 500,000 people. You know the UK Biobank? I've done some research on UK Biobank, and one of the key players behind that initiative was BAT, British American Tobacco. Why would they be interested in the Biobank? Because they want to find out if there's a genetic basis to smoking. 
some people can be seen to be have a genetic predisposition to smoking or getting or getting, or getting uh, 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 the disease, then that means that uh, that they're a small group that you know that they're that who, are, who are sort of um, um, uh, you know that are the, are the problem. And it's not a general environmental problem. And it's very interesting. There's a small article about about this genetic link to smoking, um, and there's been a bit of discussion too about uh, an obese gene. And I do wonder about the politics of this sort of research. Uh, we've got people in Monash researching these kind of things. We've also got a strong biomedical presence, so exploring, you know, stomach state and these kind of procedures. Uh, there's a lot of money looking for these biomedical kind of interventions into obesity or, or biomedical causation, for example. Mothers from Site 1 and 2 seem to be more sensitive to perceived judgments in general around stigma. They, were quite, they seem to be quite sensitive in, in interviews that they were being somehow judged that they were being bad, bad mothers. Um, and comments suggested that, sorry, all this have gone off the, uh, off the side of the page here. Comments suggested that mothers often had an intimate understanding of their children's food preferences and proclivities, such as this woman who said, pumpkin and carrot, they love James, won't eat potato, really is not, never been a potato child, peels and corn, corn they love, broccoli, cauliflower, and goes into all this kind of detail about children's likes and dislikes. What's interesting about this, and I'm preparing another paper at the moment with two of my colleagues, is about the absent male. And one wonders whether... In cases, not all these women had partners, the cases where they had partner, male uh, partners, and not, not all of them had male partners either, some of them had uh, female partners, whether, whether or not they had male partners, whether, whether the men were equally concerned had that kind of level of detail about their children's diets. Um, some may, I'm not sure, but um, we're, we're sort of looking at these absences and some of the discussion in, in, the, um, uh, in, in, the, in, in the transcripts. For women, the ethically managed diets of responsible mothers and citizens can be challenging the context of diverse information about children's um, uh, nutritional needs and healthy eating diets. It's not just one uniform message about what constitutes a healthy diet. There's lots of competing messages, and this came across in interviews that women are often unsure about what it is that they need to do. Um, and often, also the issue around constraints posed by personal socioeconomic circumstances and the need to juggle domestic activities. If women uh, were, were, were uh, sole parents, for example, they're often juggling work if they worked, childcare needs, and various other activities. Um, sometimes living at quite a remote uh, location from shopping centres, especially if they're out in the west. This is one of the things about socioeconomic disadvantage. Often they're away from areas where you can easily access uh, nutritious food. For example, I saw this when I was in Plymouth. For example, areas around Devonport, the lowest socioeconomic areas of Plymouth. Um, and I talked to some doctors that were there because I had close works for the medical school. Access to clean, nutritious, uh, sorry, healthy, nutritious food is not always easy for people in those circumstances. They didn't have any shops that were local that had, this, had, had good food. So while the result of efforts to align personal practice with prescribed ideals of healthy, responsible uh, motherhood can be taxing to generate anxiety, you're wrong to suggest that mothers are completely un unaccepting of this obesity uh, and the issues around diet that were, that were in the expert <coughs> discourses. For example, this mother, Glenda, from Site 3, said education is important about healthy food for kids, but I also worry that maybe too much importance is placed on the obesity crisis and everything. I think girls especially have such a fragile body image as it is. We're bombarded with images of skinny people in the media, and I suppose girls are sort of always striving towards that, and I think some of this anti-obesity message is sort of purely that as well, and I think I'm concerned about that with my daughter. So it's very interesting that we're getting this kind of, you know, 
kind of a very critical language, and what, this wasn't an isolated case either. Um, you know, sort of, sort of a tendency sometimes, uh, uh, inadvertently, I think, within sociological discourse, to sort of suggest that uh, that um, uh, you know people are kind of uh, uh, you know in some way uh, you know the, the victims of a barrage of expert information that are unresistive or uncritical. But that certainly doesn't come across in this. There's lots of critique. It's just a summary of the findings from the interviews. Um, as I mentioned, some of the mothers in childcare workers seemed quite guarded. They thought that we were making judgments, or, or we, you know, the way their responses sort of suggested that. I'm not quite circumspect in the way their response. They thought they'd been judged as, as being good mothers or good childcare workers. Most women claimed to take responsibility for food uh, choice and preparation, whether it's partners' engagement was generally marginal. Well, my husband only opens jars and cans, and I don't mind them being open, but I do like <coughs> fresh produce, vegetables and fruits, I took over that role. He likes to make his Irish stews and things like that, and, and small meals like breakfast, and a quick lunch over breakfast. But I would do 90% of the cooking at home. And what's um, interesting, some would say that the, the partners took more of a role on the weekend. Mm. You know, they had the barbecue or something like that, and that was sort of a means to reign. They were quite happy with that kind of arrangement. But women also expressed a strong sense, strong sense of responsibility for their children's present and future health status. And uh, I'll refer to some other literature to outside the food area which, which also highlights this and this one here I picked up was uh, you know my mum is big my sister is big my husband is big so it's in our family there's a sense here which is a, you know this genetic inherited condition yes I just worry I don't want them to go through especially primary school you know high school kids are cruel uh, you know I don't want them to have to go through that if possible definitely I take that as my responsibility I'm the one who cooks I'm the one who buys you know, if I bought pizza every night and stuff like that, it would be just as another I'd be, wouldn't be doing the right job. Um, some instances <coughs> present the responsibilities of relatively uncontentious aspects of mothering because I'm their mother and I just let them do whatever that would be uh, become of them. One would waste away, be skinny. One would be, uh, who knows? See, that's why. Who else is going to teach them? So, so, and there's also a sense in which you know, mothers thought it was important from very young age to guide their, their children over the formative period. So it was important to sort of set down the ground rules at that age, that if things weren't you know, set in place at that age, then the children would develop bad habits later on. And um, I suppose this sort of does reinforce the sense in which women see themselves as the primary socialising agents within the household. Is, uh, as I said, it's reinforced through various... Uh, uh, prescriptions, I suppose, in public health um, and through the childcare centres. I'm not talking about the childcare workers here. Now, I mentioned that you know, we only have a relatively small number, but the, 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 uh, I think about four or five of them did mention at some point that they saw themselves as undertaking a kind of an educative role as well because they thought that some of the mothers weren't uh, necessarily doing the right thing in terms of providing healthy diets for their children and saw themselves as gently guiding the parents, sort of just sort of saying, well, you know, just take this pamphlet home, you know, it might, 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 might be of interest to you, for example. And in the childcare centres, they often had community gardens as well, so it introduced the students sort of the fundamentals about um, uh, healthy eating and healthy cooking because the cooks there would, 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 would choose uh, vegetables from the garden and cook at the childcare centre. So there's a lot of this stuff happening at that kind of, that kind of level. Uh, which is not always uh, uh, recognised. I think when people talk about, you know, 
that responsibilities because it's, it's, a, it's kind of a devolved responsibility in a way. Mothers take primary responsibility, but these childcare workers certainly did take on that role. This uh, articulation of um, maternal responsibility, namely demonstrating for concern for children's futures, has been found in other studies. Um, I mentioned Delaney's study, uh, Hallowell's work in genetic testing, for example, uh, article called Doing the Right Thing. I don't know if you know Nina Hallowell. Uh, Nina's talked about uh, how women in genetic testing tend to take most of the responsibility for doing the right thing for, for um, present and future generations. It's familiar responsibility in the context of genetic testing. <clears throat> and as I said, there was a... Uh, I don't know what's happened to my text here. I was fiddling before I came. I must have upset something. <laughs> women are often critical of advice uh, offered such as the notion that very young children may be overweight and use BMI for assessing childhood. So this concept of obesity was, was criticised for a number of women. I thought it bizarre. Two years old, and she's being measured for her BMI. <coughs> um, at this stage, I think they're too young to be classified as fat or obese. I mean, it's four or five years old, um, and then they start getting kind of like a ball, and I would say they're fat, but not at her age. Um, but mothers often express anxiety about what constitutes healthy eating, with some making reference to conflicting advice that is available. And uh, often mothers talk about, uh, um, uh, you know, being worried about a range of issues. They actually t- use the term worried or being stressed. Stress is another term that's used quite often. Um, and, and this included things like uh, whether the diet was balanced, whether they were eating enough, how to negotiate their children's dislikes and levels of physical activity and how their children were perceived appearance resulting stigma. I just mentioned a couple of examples a little while ago. So in a way, this is this uh, performative aspect, I think, of, of, uh, of, of worry. And, and it could be that perhaps they're overemphasising this aspect of, of responsible motherhood when they're talking to us in their interviews. You know, they try to demonstrate that they're, that they're, that they're worried. But the level of detail... Uh, the, the women were going into and talking about the food and diet, etc. is quite is quite interesting. As I said, I do wonder whether or not, when they have male partners, there is that level of concern as well. So, we're also playing this idea about performativity. You know, in this STS area, you know, the notion of performativity is being used by McKenzie and and, and others, and Judith Butler, I guess, in the gender context. The paper I'm working at the moment is playing with that concept of performativity, the performativity of anxiety. I'm not sure where it quite works yet. But um, what we want to do next is to uh, sort of place this study, I guess, in the broader context uh, of uh, um, work on you know, the role of the emotions and practices of self and maternal care, and also look at, look at the gender division of emotional labour in private and public spheres. There's been very little work on men masculinities and uh, food and food work. Uh, paper we're preparing at the moment, we're, we're, we're preparing for a special issue in uh, Women's International Forum, where they, the, the first one I've seen actually, which focuses uh, just on the um, men, masculinities, and food. It's quite an undeveloped area. And also uh, exploring this area of affective governance in nutritional care work and what that means in practice, trying to bring together governmentality work and also work around sociology of emotions. So I thought I'd leave it back. I said I didn't have a, didn't have a single clear narrative. I wanted to offer a propagation of a number of ideas that we can that we can uh, explore in discussion. And if, if you certainly have any feedback um, uh, and any suggestions, that would be most appreciated. So thanks for your attention.